by Marion Zimmer Bradley. This episode of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by Copper Cow Coffee. Pour over Vietnamese coffee. Hey, whenever you get to go back to the break room, be the coolest person in the break room with some pour over coffee. Or impress your children like I do. Dusseldorf and Barbacoa love watching me pour coffee into a thing and then dump that into a pint glass of ice. Uh, yeah, they do. They, they find it fascinating as, as, as much as like when I like make creme brulee with a blowtorch. Uh, Color of Space, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, there's going to be quite a few of them. Should be about seven or eight episodes. And that'll bring us into the first week of January. Hope you're having a good 2022. Wow, it's such a future date. I didn't, I didn't, anyway. Uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. Check out the show notes. Find out how to help support the show. Go to pgttcm.com. Check out everything we have to offer. We're on Apple uh, Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. Check us out. The Colors of Space, Chapter 7. All right, Bart. Today, we'll let you have a look at yourself. Raynor III said. Bart smiled under the muffling layers of bandage around his face. His hands were bandaged too, and he had not been permitted to look in a mirror. But the transition had been surprisingly painless. Or perhaps his sense of well-being had been due to Raynor III slipping him some drug. He had been given injections of a chemical that would change the color of his skin. There had been minor operations on his face, his hands, his feet. Let's see you get up and walk around. Bart obeyed awkwardly, and Raynor frowned. Hurt? Not exactly, but I feel as if I were limping. That's to be expected. I changed the angle of the heel tendon and the muscle of the arch. You're using a different set of muscles when you walk. Until they harden up, you'll have some assorted charley horses. Have any trouble hearing me? No, though I'd hear better without all these bandages, Bart said impatiently. All in good time. Any trouble breathing? No, except for the bandages. Fine. I changed the shape of your ears and nostrils, and it might have affected your hearing or your breathing. Now, listen, Bart. I'm going to take the bandages off your hands first. Sit down. Bart sat across the table from him, obediently sticking out his hands. Raynor III said, Shut your eyes. Bart did as he was told, and felt Raynor III's long fingers working at the bandages. Move each finger as I touch it. 
Bard obeyed, and Raynor said neutrally, Good. Now take a deep breath, and then open your eyes. Impatiently, Bart flicked his lids open. In spite of the warning, his breath went out in a harsh, jolting gasp. His hands lay on the table before him, but they were not his hands. The narrow, long fingers were pearl-gray, tipped with whitish-pink claws that curved out over the tips. Nervously, Bart moved one finger, and the long claw flicked out like a cat's, retracted. He swallowed. Golly, he felt strangely wobbly. A beautiful job, if I do say so. Be careful not to scratch yourself, and practice picking up small things. Bart saw that the long, grayish claws were trembling. How did you make the claws? Quite simple, really, Raynor beamed. I injected protein compounds into the nail matrix, which speeded up nail growth terrifically, and then, as they grew, shaped them. Joining on those tiny muscles for the retracting mechanism was the tricky part, though. Bart was moving his hands experimentally. Once over the shock, they felt quite normal. The claws didn't get in his way half so much as he'd expected when he picked up a pen that lay beside him, and, with the blunt tip, made a few of the strange-looking dots and wedges that were the Lari alphabet. Practice writing this, said Raynor Three, and laid a plastic-encased folder down beside him. It was a set of ship's papers printed in Lari. Bart read it through, seeing that it was made out to the equivalent of Astrogator First Class, Bartol. That's your name now, the name your father would have used. Memorize it, get used to the sound of it, practice writing it. Don't worry too much about the rating, it's an elementary one, what we call apprentice rating, and I have a training tape for you anyhow. My brother got hold of it, don't ask me how, and don't ask him. When am I going to see my face? When I think you're ready for the shock. Raynor said bluntly. It almost threw you when I showed you your hands. He made Bart walk around some more briefly, slowly. He unwound the bandages, then turned and picked up a mirror at the bottom of his medic's case, turning it right side up. Here, but take it easy. But when Bart looked in the mirror, he felt no unexpected shock, only an unnerving revulsion. His hair was bleached white and fluffy, almost feathery to the touch. His skin was grayish rose, and his eyelids had been altered just enough to make his eyes look long, narrow, and slanted. His nostrils were mere slits, and he moved his tongue over lips that felt oddly thin. I did as little to your teeth as I thought I could get away with, capped the front ones, Raynor Three told him. So, if you get a toothache, you're out of luck. You won't dare go to a Lari dentist. I could have done more, but it would have made you look too freakish when we changed you back to human again, if you live that long, he added grimly. I hadn't thought about that. And if Raynor is going to forget me, who will do it? The cold knot of fear, never wholly absent, moved in him again. Watching his face, 
Raynor 3 said gently, It's a big network part. I'm not telling you much for your own safety. But when you get to Antares, they'll tell you all you need to know. He lifted Bart's oddly clawed hands. I warned you, remember? The change isn't completely reversible. Your hands will always look... strange. The fingers had to be lengthened, for instance. I wanted to make you as safe as possible among the lhari. I think you'll pass anything but an X-ray. Just be careful not to break any bones. He gave Bart a package. This is the lhari training tape. Listen to it as often as you can, then destroy it. Completely, before you leave here. The Swiftwing is due in port three days from now, and they stay here a week. I don't know how we'll manage it, but I'll guarantee there'll be a vacancy of one Astrogator First Class on that ship. He rose. And now, I'm going back to town and erase the memory. He stopped, looking intently at Bart. So, if you see me, stay away from me and don't speak because I won't know you from any other lorry. Understand? From here on, you're on your own, Bart. He held out his hand. This is the rough part, son. His face moved strangely. I'm part of this network between the stars, but I don't know what I've done before, and I'll never know how it comes out. It's funny to stand here and look at you and realize that I won't even remember you. The gold-glinted eyes blinked rapidly. Goodbye, Bart, and good luck, son. Bart took his hand, deeply moved, with the strange sense that this was another death, a worse one than Briscoe's. He tried to speak and couldn't. Well... Raynor's mouth twisted into a wry grin. Ouch! Careful with those claws! The lorry don't shake hands! He turned abruptly and went out of the door and out of Bart's life, while Bart stood at the dome window, feeling alone as he had never felt alone before. He had to wait six days, and they felt like six eternities, he played the training tape over and over. With his academy background, it wasn't nearly so difficult as he'd feared. He'd read and reread the set of papers identifying him as Astrogator First Class Bartol. Forged, he supposed. Or was there, somewhere, a real Bartol? The last morning, he slept uneasily late. He finished his last meal as a human, spent part of the day removing all traces of his presence from Raynor's home, burned the training tape, and finally got into the silky, silvery tights and cloak that Raynor had provided. He could use his hands now as if they belonged to him. He even found the claws handy and useful. He could write his signature and copy out instructions from the training tape without a moment's hesitation. Toward dusk, a young lorry slipped unobserved out of Raynor's house and hiked unnoticed to the edges of a small city nearby, where he mingled with the crowd and hired a skycab from an unobservant human driver to take him to the spaceport city. The skycab driver was startled, 
but not, Bart judged, unusually so, to pick up a lorry passenger. Been doing a little sightseeing on our planet, hey? That's right, Bart said in Universal, not trying to fake his idea of the lorry accent. Raynor had told him that only a few of the lorry had that characteristic sibilant R and S, and warned him against trying to imitate it. Just speak naturally. There are dialects of lorry, just as there are dialects of the different human languages, and they all sound different in Universal anyhow. Just looking around some. The Skycab driver frowned and looked down at his controls, and Bart felt curiously snubbed. Then he remembered. He himself had little to say to the lorry when they spoke to him. He was an alien, a monster. He couldn't expect to be treated like a human being anymore. When the Skycab led him off before the spaceport, it felt strange to see how the crowds edged away from him as he made a way through them. He caught a glimpse of himself in one of the mirror ramps, a tall, thin, strange form in a metallic cloak, head crested with feathery white, and felt overwhelmingly homesick for his own familiar face. He was beginning to feel hungry and realized that he could not go into an ordinary restaurant without attracting attention. There were refreshment stands all over the spaceport, and he briefly considered getting a snack at one of these. No, that was just putting it off. The time had to come when he must face his fear and test his disguise among the lorry themselves. Reviewing his knowledge of the construction of spaceports, he remembered that one side was the terminal, where the humans and visitors and passengers were freely admitted. The other side, for lorry and their mentorian employees only, contained, along with business offices of many sorts, a sort of arcade with amusement centers, shops, and restaurants catering to the personnel of the lorry ships. With nine or ten ships docking every day, Raynor had assured him that a strange lorry face would be lost in the crowds very easily. He went to one of the doors marked Danger, Lorry Lights Beyond, and passed through the glaring corridor of offices and storage warehouses, finally coming out into a sort of wide mall. The lights were fierce, but he could endure them without trouble now, though his head ached faintly. Raynor, testing his light tolerance, had assured him that he could endure anything the lorry could, without permanent damage to his optic nerves, though he would have headaches until he got used to them. There were small shops and what looked like bars, and a glass-fronted place with a sign lettered largely in black letters, a lorry phrase meaning roughly, Home away from home, meals served, spacemen welcome, reasonable. Behind him, a voice in lorry, Tell me, does that sign mean what it says? Or is this one of those traps for separating the unwary spaceman from his hard-earned credits? How's the food? Bart carefully took hold of himself. I was just wondering that myself. He turned as he spoke, finding himself face to face with a young lorry in the unadorned cloak of a spaceman without official rank. He knew the lorry was young because his crest was still white. 
The young Lari extended his claws in the closed fist, hidden claw gesture of Lari greeting. Shall we take a chance? Ring, son of Rahan, greets you. Bartol, son of Barahun. I don't remember seeing you in the port, Bartol. I've mostly worked on the Polaris run. Way off there. Ring, son of Rahan, sounded startled and impressed. You really get around, don't you? Shall we sit here? They sat on triangular chairs at a three-cornered table. Bart waited for Ring to order and ordered what he did. When it came, it was a sort of egg-and-fish casserole, which Bart found extremely tasty, and he dug into it with pleasure. Allowing for the claws, lhari table manners were not so much different from human. And remember, their customs differ as much as ours do. If you do something different, they'll just think you're from another planet with a different culture. Have you been here long? A day or so. I'm off the swift wing. Bart decided to hazard his luck. I was told there's a vacancy on the swift wing. Ring looked at him curiously. There is, he said, but I'd like to know how you found it out. Captain Varangil said that anyone who talked about it would be sent to Cleto for three cycles. But what happened to you? Miss your ship? No, I've just been laying off, traveling, sightseeing, bumming around, Bart said. But I'm tired of it, and now I'd like to sign out again. Well, we could use another man. This is the long run we're making, out to Antares and then home. And if everybody has to work extra shifts, it's no fun. But if old Varangil knows that there's been talk in the port about Clanero jumping ship, or whatever happened to him, we'll all have to walk wide of his temper. Bart was beginning to relax a little. Ring apparently accepted him without scrutiny. At this close range, Ring did not seem a monster, but just a young fellow like himself, hearty, good-natured, in fact, not unlike Tommy. Bart chased the thought away as soon as it sneaked into his brain. One of those things, like Tommy. Then, rather grimly, he reminded himself, I'm one of those things. He said irritably, So, how do I account for asking your captain for the place? Ring cocked his fluffy crest to one side. I know, he said. I told you. I'll say you're an old friend of mine. You don't know what Varangil's like when he gets mad. But what he doesn't know, he won't shout about. He shoved back the triangular chair. Who did tell you anyway? This was the first real hurdle, and Bart's brain raced desperately. But Ring was not listening for an answer. I suppose somebody gossiped, or one of those fool mentorians picked it up. Got your papers? What rating? Astrogator first class? Planero was second, but you can't have everything, I suppose. Ring led the way through the arcades, out across a guarded sector, passing half a dozen of the huge ships lying in their pits. Finally, Ring stopped and pointed. This is the old hulk. 
Bard had traveled only in lhari passenger ships, which were new and fresh and sleek. This ship was enormous, ovoid like the egg of some space monster, the sides dented and discolored, thin films of chemical discoloration lying over the glassy metallic hull. Bart followed Ring. This was real. It was happening. He was signing out for his first interstellar cruise on one of the lhari ships. Not a mentorian assistant, half-trusted, half-tolerated, but one of the crew themselves. If I'm lucky, he reminded himself grimly. There was lhari in the black-banded officer's cloak at the doorway. He glanced at Ring's papers. Friend of mine, Ring said, and Bart proffered his folder. The lhari gave it a casual glance, handed it back. Old Baldy on board? Ring asked. Where else? The officer laughed. You don't think he'd relax with cargo not loaded, do you? They seemed casual and normal, and Bart's confidence was growing. They had accepted him as one of themselves. But the great ordeal still lay before him, an interview with the lhari captain, and the idea had Bart sweating scared. The corridors and decks seemed larger, wider, more spacious, but shabbier than on the clean, bright commercial passenger decks Bart had seen. Dark-lensed men were rolling bales of cargo along on wheel dollies. The corridor seemed endless, more to hear the sound of his own voice and reassure himself of his ability to speak and be understood than because he cared, he asked Ring, What's your rating? Well, according to the logbooks, I'm an expert class two metals fatigue, said Ring. That sounds very technical and interesting, but what it means is just that I go all over the ship inch by inch and when I finish, start all over again at the other end. Most of what I do is just boss around the maintenance crews and snarl at them about spots of rust on the paint. They got into a small round elevator and ringed punched buttons. It began to rise slowly and creakily toward the top. This, for instance, Ring said. I've been yelling for a new cable for six months. He turned. Take it easy, Bartol. Don't let Varangil scare you. He likes to hear the sound of his own voice, but we'd all walk out the lock without spacesuits for him. The elevator slid to a stop. The sign in Lhari letters said, Level of Administration, Officer's Deck. Ring pushed at a door and said, Captain Varangil? I thought you were on leave, said a Lhari voice, deeper and slower than most. What are you doing back here more than ten milliseconds before strap-in checks? Ring stepped back for Bart to go inside. The small cabin, with an elliptical bunk slung from the ceiling and a triangular table, was dwarfed by a tall, thin lhari in a cloak with four of the black bands that seemed to denote rank among them. He had a deeply lined face with a lacework of tiny wrinkles around the slanted eyes. His crest was not the high, fluffy white of a young lhari, but broken short near the scalp, grayish-pink showing through, the little feathery ends yellowed with age. He growled, 
Come in, then. Don't just stand there. I suppose Rings told you what a tyrant I am. What do you want, Feathertop? Bart remembered being told that this was the lhari equivalent of kid or youngster. He fumbled in the capacious folds of his cloak for his papers. His voice sounded shrill, even to himself. Bartol, son of Berahun, in respectful greeting, Reiko Mori. Honorable old bald one, the lhari equivalent of sir. Ring told me there is a vacancy among the astrogators, and I want to sign out. Unmistakably, Vorongil's snort was laughter. So, you've been talking, Ring. Ring retorted, Better that I tell one man than that you have to hunt the planet over, or run the long haul with the drive room watches short by one man. Well, well, you're right, Vorongil growled. He glared at Bart. On the last planet, one of our men disappeared. Jumped ship. The creases around his eyes deepened, troubled. Probably just gone on the drift, sightseeing. But I wish he'd told me. As it is, I wonder if he's been hurt, killed, kidnapped. Ring said, Who dare? It would be reported. Bart knew, with a cold chill, that the missing Clenerol had not simply gone on the drift. No lorry port would ever see Clenerol, second-class astrogator, again. Bartol, mused the captain, riffling the forged papers. Served on the Polaris run. Hmm, you are a good long way off your orbit, aren't you? Never been out that way myself. All right, I'll take you on. You can do system programming? Good. Rating in second galaxy mathematics? He nodded, hauled out a sheet of thin, wax-coated fabric, and his claws made rapid imprints in the surface. He passed it to Bart, pointed. Bart hesitated, and Varangil said impatiently, Standard agreement, no hidden clauses. Put your mark on it, Feathertop. Bart realized it was something like a fingerprint they wanted. You'll pass anything but x-rays. He pressed the top of one claw into the wax. Barangil nodded, shoved it on a shelf without looking at it. So much for that, said Ring, laughing, as they came out. The bald one was in a good temper. I'm going to the port and celebrate. Not that this dim place is very festive. You? I... I think I'll stay aboard. Well, if you change your mind, I'll be down there somewhere, Ring said. See you later, shipmate. He raised his closed fist in farewell and went. Bart stood in the corridor, feeling astounded and strange. He belonged here. He had a right to be on board the ship. He wasn't quite sure what to do next. A lorry, as short and fat as a lorry could possibly be and still be a lorry, came, or rather waddled, out of the captain's office. He saw Bartol and called, Are you the new first class? I'm Rugel, coordinator. Rugel had a huge, cleft, darkish scar across his lip, and there were two bands on his cloak. He was completely bald, and he puffed when he walked. Barangil asked me to show you around. 
You'll share quarters with Ring. No sense shifting another man. Come down and see the chart rooms. Or do you want to leave your kid in your cabin first? I don't have much, Bart said. Rugel's seamed lip widened. That's the way. Travel light when you're on the drift, he confirmed. Rugel took him down to the drive rooms, and here for a moment, in wonder and awe, Bart almost forgot his disguise. The old lorry led him to the huge computer which filled one wall of the room, and Bart was smitten with the universality of mathematics. Here was something he knew he could handle. He could do this programming easily enough. But as he stood before the banks of complex, yet beautifully familiar levers, the sheer, exquisite complexity of it overcame him. To compute the movements of thousands of stars, all moving at different speeds in different directions in the vast, swirling, directionless chaos of the universe, and yet to be sure that every separate movement would come out to within a quarter of a mile. It was something that no finite brain, man or lorry, could ever accomplish. Yet, their limited brains had built these computers that could do it. Rugel watched him, laughing softly. Well, you'll have enough time down here. I'd like to have youngsters who are still in the middle of a love affair with their work. Come along, I'll show you your cabin. Rugel left him in a cabin amidships, small and cramped, but tidy, two of the oval bunks slung at opposite ends, a small table between them, and drawers filled with pamphlets and manuals and maps. Furtively, ashamed of himself, yet driven by necessity, Bart searched Ring's belongings, wanting to get some idea of what possessions he ought to own. He looked around the shower and toilet facilities with extra care. This was something he couldn't slip up on and be considered even halfway normal. He was afraid Ring would come in and see him staring curiously at something as ordinary to a lorry as a cake of soap. He decided to go down to the port again and look around the shops. He was not afraid of being unable to handle his work. What he feared was something subtler that the small items of everyday living, something as simple as a nail file, would betray him. On his way, he looked into the recreation lounge, filled with comfortable seats, vision screens, and what looked like simple pinball machines and mechanical games of skill. There were also stacks of tape reels and headsets for listening, not unlike those humans used. Bart felt fascinated and wanted to explore, but decided he could do that later. Somehow, he took the wrong turn coming out of the recreation lounge and went through a door where the sudden dimming of lights told him he was in Mentorian quarters. The sudden darkness made him stumble, thrust out his hands to keep from falling, and an unmistakably human voice said, Ouch! I'm sorry, Bart said in Universal without thinking. I admit, the lights are dim, said the voice tartly, and Bart found himself looking down, as his eyes adjusted to the new light level, at a girl. She was small and slight, in a metallic blue cloak that swept out like wings around her thin shoulders. The hood framed a small, kitten-like face. 
She was a Mentorian, and she was human, and Bard's eyes rested with comfort on her face. She, on the other hand, was looking up with anxiety and uneasy distrust. That's right, I'm a Lhari, a non-human freak. I seem to have missed my way. What are you looking for, sir? The medical quarters are through there. I'm looking for the elevator down to the crew exits. Through here, she said, reopening the door through which he had come, and shading her large, lovely, long-lashed eyes with a slender hand. You took the wrong turn. Are you new on board? I thought all ships were laid out exactly alike. I've only worked on passenger ships. I believe they are somewhat different, said the girl in good lorry. Well, that is your way, sir. He felt as if he had been snubbed and dismissed. What is your name? She stiffened, as if about to salute. Meta of the House of Marnay Three, sir. Bart realized he was doing something wholly out of character for a lorry, chatting casually with a mentorian. With a wistful glance at the pretty girl, he said a stiff, Thank you, and went down the ramp she had indicated. He felt horribly lonely. Being a freak wasn't going to be much fun. End of Chapter 7 again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. The Colors of Space Chapter 8 He saw the girl again next day, when they checked in for blastoff. She was seated at a small desk, triangular like so much of the lorry furniture, checking a register as they came out of the decontam room, making sure they downed their greenish solution of microorganisms. Papers, please, she marked, and Bart noticed that she was using a red pencil. Bartol, she said aloud, is that how you pronounce it? She made small scribbles in a sort of shorthand with the red pencil, then made other marks with the black one in Lari. He supposed the red marks were her own private memoranda, unreadable by the Lari. Next, please. She handed a cup of the greenish stuff to Ring behind him. Bart went down toward the drive room and, to his own surprise, found himself wishing the girl were a mathematician rather than a medic. It would have been pleasant to watch her down there. Old Rugel, on duty in the drive room, watched Bart strap himself in before the computer. Make sure you check all dials at null, he reminded him, 
and Bart felt a last surge of panic. This was his first cruise, except for practice runs at the academy. Yet, his rating called him an experienced man on the Polaris run. He'd had the lorry training tape, which was supposed to condition his responses, but would it? He tried to clench his fists, drove a claw into his palm, winced, and commanded himself to stay calm and keep his mind on what he was doing. It calmed him to make the routine check of his dials. Strap down check, said a lorry with a yellowed crest and a rasping voice. No man, eh? He gave Bart straps perfunctory tugs at shoulders and waist, tightened a buckle. Carol, son of Garin. Bells rang in the ship, and Bart felt the odd, tonic touch of fear. This was it. Barongil strode through the door, his banded cloak sweeping behind him, and took the control couch. Ready from fueling room, sir. Position, Barongil snapped. Bart heard himself reading off a string of figures in Lari. His voice sounded perfectly calm. Communication. Clear channels from pylon dispatch, sir. It was old Rugel's voice. Well, Vorongil said, slowly and almost reflectively, let's take her up then. He touched some controls. The humming grew. Then, swift, hard, and crushing, weight mashed Bart against his couch. Position! Vorongil's voice sounded harsh and Bart fought the crushing weight of it. Even his eyeballs ached as he struggled to turn the tiny eye muscles from dial to dial, and his voice was a dim croak. 14-7 sidereal, 12.1149. Hold it to point one one four six, Vorongil said calmly. Point one one four six, Bart said, and his claws stabbed at dials. Suddenly, in spite of the cold weight on his chest, the pain, the struggle, he felt as if he were floating. He managed a long, luxurious breath. He could handle it. He knew what he was doing. He was an astrogator. Later, when Acceleration One had reached its apex and the artificial gravity made the ship a place of comfort again, he went down to the dining hall with Ring and met the crew of the Swiftwing. There were twelve officers and twelve crewmen of various ratings, like himself and Ring, but there seemed to be little social division between them, as there would have been on a human ship. Officers and crew joked and argued without formality of any kind. None of them gave him a second look. Later, in the recreation lounge, Ring challenged him to a game with one of the pinball machines. It seemed fairly simple to Bart. He tried it, and to his own surprise, won. Old Rugel touched a lever at the side of the room. With a tiny whishing sound, shutters opened. The light of Procyon Alpha flooded them, and he looked out through a great viewport into bottomless space. Procyon Alpha, Beta, and Gamma hung at full, rings gently tilted. Beyond them, the stars burned, flaming through the shimmers of cosmic dust. The colors, the never-ending colors of space. And he stood here, in a room full of monsters. He was one of the monsters. 
Which one of the planets was it we stopped on? Rugel asked. I can't tell them apart from this distance. Bartol swallowed. He had almost said the blue one. He pointed. The, the big one there, with the rings almost edge on. I think they call it Alpha. It's their planet, said Rugel. I guess they can call it what they want to. How about another game? Resolutely, Bart turned his back on the bewitching colors and bent over the pinball machine. The first week in space was a nightmare of strain. He welcomed the hours on watch in the drive room. There alone, he was sure of what he was doing. Everywhere else in the ship, he was perpetually scared, perpetually on tiptoe, perpetually afraid of making some small and stupid mistake. Once, he actually called Aldebaran a red star, but Rugel either did not hear the slip or thought he was repeating what one of the Mentorians, there were two aboard besides the girl, had said. The absence of color from speech and life was the hardest thing to get used to. Every star in the manual was listed by light frequency waves to be checked against a photometer for a specific reading, and it almost drove Bart mad to go through the ritual when the Mentorians were off-duty and could not call off the color and the equivalent frequency type for him. Yet, he did not dare skip a single step, or someone might have guessed that he could see the difference between a yellow and a green star before checking them. The Academy ships had had the traditional human signal system of flashing red lights. Bart was stretched taut all the time, listening for the small, code-like buzzers and ticks that warned him of filled tanks, leads in need of servicing, answers ready. Ring's Metal Fatigue's testing kit was a bewildering muddle of boxes, meters, rods, and earphones, each buzzing and clicking its characteristic warning. At first, he felt stretched to capacity every waking moment, his memory aching with a million details, and he lay awake nights thinking his mind would crack under the strain. Then Alpha faded to a dim, bluish shimmer. Beta was eclipsed, Gamma was gone, Procyon dimmed to a failing spark, and suddenly Bart's memory accustomed itself to the load. The new habits were firmly in place, and he found himself eating, sleeping, and working in a settled routine. He belonged to the Swiftwing now. Procyon was almost lost in the viewports when a sort of upswept tempo began to run through the ship, an undercurrent of increased activity. Cargo was checked, inventoried, and strapped in. Rink was given four extra men to help him, made an extra tour of the ship, and came back buzzing like a frantic cricket. Bard's computers told him they were forging toward the sidereal location assigned for the first of the warp drive shifts, which would take them some 15 light years toward Aldebaran. On the final watch before the warp drive shift, the medical officer came around and relieved the Mentorians from duty. Bart watched them go with a curious, cold, crawling apprehension. Even the Mentorians, trusted by the Lari, even these were put into cold sleep. Fear grabbed his insides. 
No human had ever survived the shift into warp drive, the lhari said. Briscoe, his father, Raynor III, they thought they had proved that the lhari lied. If they were right, if it was a lhari trick to reinforce their stranglehold on the human worlds and keep the warp drive for themselves, then Bart had nothing to fear. But he was afraid. Why did the Mentorians endure this, never quite trusted, isolated among aliens? Raynor III had said, Because I belong in space. Because I'm never happy anywhere else. Bart looked out the viewport at the swirl and burn of the colors there. Now that he could never speak of the colors, it seemed he had never been so wholly and wistfully aware of them. They symbolized the thing he could never put into words. So that everyone can have this, not just the Lhari. Rugel watched the Mentorians go, scowling. I wish Medic would find a way to keep them alive through warp, he said. My Mentorian assistant could watch that frequency shift as we got near the bottom of the arc, and I'll bet she could see it. They can see the changes in intensity faster than I can plot them on the photometer. Bart felt goosebumps break out on his skin. Rugel spoke as if the certain death of humans, Mentorians, was a fact. Didn't the Lhari themselves know it was a farce? Or was it? Barangil himself took the controls for the surge of acceleration too, which would take them past the light barrier. Bart, watching his instruments to exact position and time, saw the colors of each star shift strangely, moment by moment. The red star seemed hard to see. The orange-yellow ones burned suddenly like flame. The green ones seemed golden, the blue ones almost green. Dimly, he remembered the old story of a red shift in the lights of approaching stars, but here he saw it pure, a sight no human eyes had ever seen. A sight that no eyes had seen, human or otherwise, for the lhari could not see it. Time, he said briefly to Vorongil. Fifteen seconds. Rugel looked across from his couch. Bart felt that the old, scarred lhari could read his fear. Rugel said through a wheeze, No matter how old you get, Bartol, you're still scared when you make a warp shift. But relax, computers don't make mistakes. Catalyst, Vorongil snapped. Ready, shift. At first, there was no change. Then Bart realized that the stars, through the viewport, had altered abruptly in size and shade and color. They were not sparks, but strange streaks, like comets, crossing and recrossing long tails that grew longer and longer moment by moment. The dark night of space was filled with a crisscrossing blaze. They were moving faster than light. They saw the light left by the moving universe as each star hurled in its own invisible orbit, while they tore incredibly through it, faster than light itself. Bart felt a curious, tingling discomfort, deep in his flesh, almost an itching 
a stinging in his very bones. Lhari flesh is no different from ours. Space through the viewport was no longer space as he had come to know it, but a strange, eerie limbo, the star tracks lengthening, shifting color until they filled the whole viewport with shimmering, gray, recrossing light. The unbelievable reaction of warp drive thrust them through space faster than the lights of the surrounding stars, faster than imagination could follow. The lights in the drive chamber began to dim, or was he blacking out? The stinging in his flesh was a clawed pain. Briscoe lived through it, they say. The whirling star tracks fogged, coiled, turned colorless worms of light, went into a single vast blur. Dimly, Bart saw old Rugal slump forward, moaning softly. Saw the old Lhari pillow his bald head on his veined arms. Then darkness took him, and thinking it was death, Bart felt only numb, regretful failure. I failed. We'll always fail. The Lhari were right all along. But we tried. By God, we tried. Bartol, a gentle hand, cat claws retracted, came down on his shoulder. Ring bent over him. Good-natured rebuke was in his voice. Why didn't you tell us you got a bad reaction and asked to sign out for this shift? He demanded. Look, poor old Rugel's passed out again. He just won't admit he can't take it. But one idiot on a watch is enough. Some people just feel as if the bottom's dropped out of the ship, and that's all there is to it. Bart hauled his head upright, fighting a surge of stinging nausea. His bones itched inside, and he was damnably uncomfortable. But he was alive. I'm fine. You look it, Ring said in derision. Think you can help me get Rugel to his cabin? Bart struggled to his feet and found that when he was upright, he felt better. Wow, he muttered and clamped his mouth shut. He was supposed to be an experienced man, a lhari hardened to space. He said woozily, How long was I out? The usual time, Ring said briskly, about three seconds, just while we hit peak warp drive. Feels longer, so they tell me sometimes. Time's funny beyond light speeds. The medic says it's purely psychological. I'm not so sure. I itch, blast it. He moved his shoulders in a squirming way, then bent over Rugel, who was moaning half insensible. Catch hold of his feet, Bartol. Here, ease him out of his chair. No sense bothering the medics this time. Think you can manage to help me carry him down to the deck? Sure, Bart said, finding his feet and his voice. He felt better as they moved along the hallway, the limp, muttering form of the old Lhari insensible in their arms. They reached the officer's deck, got Rugel into his cabin and into his bunk, hauled off his cloak and boots. Ring stood, shaking his head. And they say Captain Barongo's so tough. Bart made a questioning noise. 
Why, just look, said Ring. He knows it would make poor old Rugel feel as if he wasn't good for much to order him into his bunk and make him take dope like a Mentorian for every warp shift. So we have this to go through at every jump. He sounded cross and disgusted, but there was a rough, boyish gentleness as he hauled the blanket over the bald old lorry. He looked up, almost shyly. Thanks for helping me with old Baldy. We usually try to get him out before Vorongil officially takes notice. Of course, he sort of keeps his back turned, Ring said, and they laughed together as they turned back to the drive room. Bart found himself thinking, Ring's a good kid, before he pulled himself up in sudden shock. He had lived through warp drive. Then, indeed, the lorry had been lying all along the vicious lie that maintained their stranglehold monopoly of star travel. He was their enemy again, the spy within their gates, like Briscoe, to be hunted down and killed, but to bring the message loud and clear to everyone. The Lhari lied. The stars can belong to us all. When he got back to the drive room, he saw through the viewport that the blur had vanished. The star trails were clear, distinct again, their comet tails shortening by the moment, their colors more distinct. The lorry were waiting, a few poised over their instruments, a few more standing at the quartz window watching the star trails, some squirming and scratching and grousing about space fleas, the characteristic itching reaction that seemed to be deep down inside the bones. Bart checked his panels, noted the time when they were due to snap back into normal space, and went to stand by the viewport. The stars were reappearing, seeming to steady and blaze out in cloudy splendor through the bright dust. They burned in great streamers of flame, and for the moment he forgot his mission again, lost in the beauty of the fiery lights. He drew a deep, shaking gasp. It was worth it all to see this. He turned and saw Ring, silent at his shoulder. Me too, Ring said, almost in a whisper. I think every man on board feels that way, a little, only he won't admit it. His slanted gray eyes looked quickly at Bart and away. I guess we're almost down to L point. Better check the panel and report nulls so Medic can wake up the Mentorians. The Swiftwing moved on between the stars. Aldebaran loomed, then faded in the viewports. Another shift jumped them to a star whose human name Bart did not know. Shift followed shift, spaceport followed spaceport, sun followed sun. Men lived on most of these worlds, and on each of them a lorry spaceport rose, alien and arrogant. And on each world men looked at lorry with resentful eyes, cursing the race who kept the stars for their own. Cargo amassed in the holds of the Swiftwing, from worlds beyond all dreams of strangeness. Bart grew, not bored, but hardened to the incredible. For days at a time, no word of human speech crossed his mind. 
the blackout at peak of each warp shift persisted. Vorongil had given him permission to report off-duty, but since the blackouts did not impair his efficiency, Bart had refused. Rugel told him that this was the moment of equilibrium, the peak of the faster-than-light motion. Perhaps a true limiting speed beyond which nothing will ever go, Vorongil said, touching the charts with a varnished claw. Rugel's scarred old mouth spread in a thin smile. Maybe there's no such thing as a limiting speed. Someday we'll reach true simultaneity, enter warp and come out just where we want to be, at the same time, just a split-second interval. That will be real transmission. Ring scoffed. And suppose you get even better and come out of warp before you go into it. What then, honorable bald one? Rugel chuckled and did not answer. Bart turned away. It was not easy to keep on hating the lorry. There came a day when he came on watch to see drawn, worried faces. And when Ring came into the drive room, they drew their levers on automatic and crowded around him, their crests bobbing in question and dismay. Vorongil seemed to emit sparks as he barked at Ring. You found it? I found it, inside the hull lining. Vorongil swore, and Ring held up a hand in protest. I only locate metal's fatigue, sir. I don't make it. No help for it, then, Vorongil said. We'll have to put down for repairs. How much time do we have, Ring? I give it thirty hours, Ring said briefly, and Vorongil gave a long, shrill whistle. Bartol, what's the closest listed spaceport? Bart dived for handbooks, manuals, comparative tables of position, and started programming information. The crew drifted toward him, and by the time he finished feeding in the coded information, a row three deep of lorry surrounded him, including all the officers. Vorongil was right at his shoulder when Bart slipped on his earphones and started decoding the punch strips that fed out the answers from the computer. Nearest port is Cotman 4. It's almost exactly 30 hours away. I don't like to run it that close. Vorongil's face was bitten deep with lines. He turned to Romillus, head of maintenance. Do we need spare parts or just general repairs? Just repairs, sir. We have plenty of shielding metal. It's a long job to get through the hulls, but there's nothing we can't fix. Vorongil flexed his clawed hands nervously, stretching and retracting them. Ring, you're the fatigue expert. I'll take your word for it. Can we make 30 hours? Ring looked pale, and there was none of his usual boyish nonsense when he said, Captain, I swear I wouldn't risk Cotman. You know what crystallization's like, sir. We can't get through that hull lining to repair it in space, if it does go before we land. We wouldn't have the chance of a hydrogen atom in a tank of halogens. Morongil's slanted eyebrows made a single, unbroken line. That's the word, then. Bartol, find us the closest star with a planet, spaceport or not. 
Bart's hands were shaking with sudden fear. He checked each digit of their present position, fed it into the computer, waited, finally wet his lips and plunged, taking the strip from a computer. This small star, it's called Meristem. It's a... He bit his lip hard. He had almost said green. Type Q. Two planets with atmosphere within tolerable limits, not classified as inhabited. Who owns it? I don't have that information on the bank, sir. Barongil beckoned the Mentorian assistant. So apart were Lari and Mentorian on these ships that Bart did not even know his name. He said, Look up a star called Meristem for us. The Mentorian hurried away, came back after a moment with the information that it belonged to the Second Galaxy Federation, but was listed as unexplored. Vorongil scowled. Well, we can claim necessity, he said. It's only eight hours away, and Cotman's thirty. Bartol, plot us a warp drive shift that will land us in that system, and on the inner of the two planets, within nine hours. If it's a Type Q star, that means dim illumination, and no spaceport mercury vapor installations. We'll need as much sunlight as we can get. It was the first time that Bart, unaided, had had the responsibility of plotting a warp drive shift. He checked the coordinates of the small green star three times before passing them along to Vorongil. Even so, when they went into acceleration two, he felt stinging fear. If I plotted wrong, we could shift into that crazy space and come out billions of miles away. But when the stars steadied and took on their colors, the blaze of a small green sun was steady in the viewport. Maristem, Vorongil said, taking the controls himself. Let's hope the place is really uninhabited and that catalog's up to date, lads. It wouldn't be any fun to burn up some harmless village or get shot at by barbarians. And we're setting down with no control tower signals and no spaceport repair crews. So, let's hope our luck holds out for a while yet. Bart, feeling the minute, unsteady trembling somewhere in the ship. Imagination, he told himself. You can't feel metal fatigue somewhere in the hull lining, echoed the wish. He did not know that he had already had the best luck of his unique voyage, or realize the fantastic luck that had brought him to the small green star, Meristem. End of Chapter 8